Hey, everybody. Welcome to Mossback, the official podcast of the Mossback's Northwest video series from KCTS 9 and Crosscut. I'm Stephen Haig. And I'm Knut Berger. Today, we're headed back to a cloak and dagger era of espionage that took place in Seattle and elsewhere on the eve of World War One. In 1915, German spies and sympathizers were on the murky move to literally blow up resistance to the German war effort in Europe. In fact, at the heart of this story is the terror of the largest explosion ever recorded in Seattle. If you haven't already seen the video, you'll get a lot more out of this conversation if you give it a watch. You can find it in the show notes or on crosscut.com, but for now, let's light the fuse. Knut, you've done a lot of research and writing on the rise of pro-German sentiments and Nazism in the U.S. before World War II. But German spies in the U.S. before World War I? Who knew? How did you happen on this story? Well, partly it was an outgrowth of previous research, as you say, about World War II and the interwar years. And there was significant anti-German, you could call it hysteria, concern, both before and after World War One, But I had heard about this explosion just kind of tangentially. I began to look at newspaper headlines to see if I could kind of track it down. Yeah, lo and behold, in uh, May of 1915, there was this enormous explosion uh, in Seattle. And rapidly, it was concluded that it was the work of uh, German agents. So at the time in 1915, Europe was at war. Germany and Austria-Hungary had declared war on Russia. The U.S. was neutral, and Woodrow Wilson was determined to stay out of the war. It seems like sentiment was a little bit less so on neutrality, public sentiment anyway. A big thing that changed in the spring of 1915 was the sinking of the Lusitania, which really changed public opinion. This was a British passenger liner that was torpedoed off of Ireland. And, uh, you know, it was uh, an event that killed many, many Americans who were on the ship. And uh, there was a lot of opposition to what the Germans are doing. And this kind of inflamed, I think, public opinion and public concern you know, about Germany's attacking neutral uh, countries or citizens of neutral countries. But Germany was, was determined to use all methods necessary to keep the U.S. not only out of the war, but to, to keep us neutral uh, at the start of World War I. How did they do that? It was a massive, largely covert effort that involved both diplomacy and spy networks and sabotage networks. The United States was supplying war material and raw products uh, to Britain and uh, France and other countries, including Russia, and they wanted to stop that. They didn't want the U.S. to be supplying their enemies. And this included Canada as well, by the way, because they were, they were in the war along with Britain. So the Germans were meddling all over North America. They <laughs> were trying to gain a sympathetic ally in the, during the Mexican Revolution. 
and the sa some of the same figures who were working on that were organizing um, these spy and sabotage networks in the United States. And of course, what they wanted to do was inter interrupt the supply chain. So the targets were cargo ships, uh, key bridges, railroads, ports, you know, anything where, uh, you know, material might be passing through to help the war effort. Was this centrally organized? Yes, it was. And in fact, one of the key organizers was Franz von Papen, <laughs> who you may know as Hitler's vice chancellor of Germany during, uh, during the 1930s. Uh, he was a military attache who played a significant role both in Mexico and the United States in stirring up trouble. And they worked out of uh, German consulates. Um, they hired saboteurs if they couldn't find, you know, ideological partners. And acts of sabotage uh, began occurring. And word that sabotage was being planned or plotted or coming, you know, some of these things were just rumor. Um, but some of them actually happen. Was this happening all over the country? I, I know in Britain there was some say hysteria over the network of German spies, but apparently they caught a few. So this was happening all over the United States? Yes, it was. And of course, it was uh, focused on areas of interest to Germany, which would be the Canadian border, the East Coast uh, shipping and the West Coast. The West Coast operation, interestingly, operated out of the German consulate in San Francisco, which, which was also the center of uh, German activity and espionage uh, prior to World War II. And they were keeping tabs on what was being shipped out of West Coast ports. And there were a couple of, uh, there was an act of sabotage or alleged sabotage that occurred shortly before the blast in Seattle. And it was um, some rail cars in Tacoma, the port of Tacoma, that were carrying vehicles and mechanical parts bound for Vladivostok, in other words, Russia, um, burned. And, you know, there was a lot of tumult on waterfronts. There was a lot of suspicion that there were foreign radicals working in the in the uh, longshore business or whatever. And so, um, you know, security was heightened. There were U.S. agents, federal agents and whatnot in the area trying to track down these sabotage networks. Was there a general public concern and awareness about this or was this all completely under the radar? No, there was awareness of it. There was coverage of it. I mean, we didn't get into the war until 1917. In 1915, 1916, the newspapers are full of war news. They're full of articles where people are upset about German influence or you can't open a newspaper or look at the front page of a newspaper in that era without reading not just about events like the Lusitania, but many, many others. The press is following the war in Europe very carefully. Was there distrust or suspicion about German-Americans, anti-German sentiment? Well, I think there was growing anti-German sentiment. There was actually a riot in Victoria, British Columbia 
where Germans in, were attacked on the street and they had to bring in the, the military to <laughs> break up the riot. So there was a lot of anger um, and it, it steadily grew. And of course, once you got closer to the war, I think it was at a fairly fever pitch. There were states that banned the teaching of German, the speaking of German. What's interesting to me is that you read a lot about the hysteria at that time, but the general public doesn't know about this sabotage effort and the extensive planned nature of it. Some historians have said it's essentially the first and most extensive foreign attack on American soil prior to 9-11. So let's get to the explosion. Let's just paint the picture. What happened? When did it happen? So there was some concern and heightened after this incident in Tacoma with the rail car, there was a rumor in shipping circles that a load of dynamite that was headed from San Francisco to Tacoma was and was going to be put on a Japanese vessel headed for Vladivostok, that uh, it was going to be targeted by saboteurs. So they ended up, the the barge um, with, you know, 622 crates of Hercules dynamite, which is the kind of dynamite used or in uh, munitions, came to Seattle. They needed to put it on a different sh vessel of some kind, and it was anchored at a buoy off of Harbor Island. And it sat there for a couple weeks while they were trying to figure out um, you know, what kind of ship they could put it on, alternative vessel. And in the meantime, uh, they covered the, <laughs> they covered the uh, crates with a tarp, and they got essentially, I think, a homeless guy to guard. His, he's only known by the name of Fat. And he was hired and, and uh, put there as a watchman on this, uh, on this dynamite. So on the weekend before Memorial Day, and uh, you know, a big celebration was being planned, a parade, the circus was in town, Buffalo Bill Cody was in town and gonna lead the parade. They had Union and Confederate veterans were gonna march and kind of a reconciliation in the parade, big deal. So these plans are going on. And in the middle of the night, there's an enormous explosion that wakes up the whole town and virtually shakes the whole town. It shatters windows from Pioneer Square to Queen Anne Hill. Every plate glass window downtown is broken. Someone, you know, described it like glass rain falling down. And it was fortunate that it happened in the middle of the night because nobody was on the street. So there were virtually no injuries except for poor fat was never found. Um, and uh, nobody really knows what happened to him. Um, and there were very few witnesses. So, you know, you have fire alarms going off. You have, in some cases, phone system going down. The police have no idea what's going on. Um, is, is they think, was well, somebody blowing a safe downtown? Is it, uh, is it an earthquake? Um, 
the fire department doesn't know where the explosion was. Uh, nobody can, you know, track it down. Most people at, at best, you know, saw a brilliant flash of light and, and then, you know, were maybe knocked over or shaken by the concussion. And, uh, and people are coming up with theories. Somebody thought it was a, a German Zeppelin attack. <laughs> um, and it was heard as far away as Victoria and Tacoma. So, you know, it, it was big. It was big. I mean, 622 crates of dynamite going up. It was big. Um, it, the barge, of course, it was on, was destroyed. Uh, it was next to a coal barge that sank and turned over. It did quite a bit of damage on the waterfront. So warehouses, shanty communities, uh, retail outlets, things that were, you know, on the on Elliott Bay or on the Duwamish, um, you know, were badly damaged. But it was mostly, you know, places where people weren't at one in the morning. So this TNT was headed toward Russia. Why Russia? Well, Russia was an ally of in in World War One at that point. It was pre-revolutionary Russia. So it would be shipped to Vladivostok and then railroaded to the front of the war in. Yes, presumably uh, that's where that's where it was going. So it was, you know, it would have been targeted because it was, it was. War material going to a, a enemy of Germany, namely uh, Russia. I guess it was probably immediately assumed that a German agent had done this. Was there any evidence of that? What, was anyone tracked down? Yeah. The, so immediately after the blast, you know, in that the day after, it was sort of like, well, there's there's lots of speculation. But immediately after that, it came out that the owners of the barge had received some kind of a threat, a warning. It came out that there had been two German agents who had been in Seattle um, just days before the explosion. There was uh, a man who was a suspected German agent who committed suicide in a downtown hotel room. And it was thought that maybe he was the bomber and then had killed himself rather than be captured. And there was another fellow from Tacoma who, it turned out later, was working for the German saboteur network who had purchased dynamite in Seattle. He said it was for his uh, stump farm, I guess, uh, in Pierce County and had talked his way out of being a suspect. He later turned... Uh, against the Germans and was a federal witness, and he never admitted to being involved in the in the um, Seattle blast, but he was involved in some other shenanigans, and and um, that resulted in raids that resulted in other German agents being arrested. Seems funny that you'd need dynamite to blow up dynamite. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and of course there was, you know, there were some people who said, yeah, maybe it was an accident. Maybe, um, you know, maybe somebody kicked over a, a lamp or, you know, there was some other 
um, cause of it. Maybe the, fat was smoking a cigar. The, yeah, exactly. The two, the, there are two people we know that were actually looking right at the barge when it blew up. One was an officer on a Coast Guard cutter that was also moored in Elliott Bay, not far from the scow, and he was the guy on watch. I uh, was the quartermaster, and he happened to be looking that direction when it blew up. And there was another guy who was like a, a watchman or something up on Queen Anne, who was on Highland Drive, looking in that direction when the blast. And you hear this, you know, this description of there being a small flash and then an enormous explosion, this giant pillar of flame in the sky with with parts of the scow on top, you know, almost like a cartoon. And uh, and then this, you know, magnificent blast. I think the, the best theory is there was some kind of incendiary device. And this was the technique that the German saboteurs were using on cargo ships. They would have uh, incendiary devices on a timer of some kind. They'd get loaded into these vessels and then they would set fire at sea. Were there any other examples of that were as dramatic as this explosion? You mentioned cargo, cargo ships. Were other things blown up around the country? So a little over a year later, the, the largest and most <laughs> noteworthy explosion was the sabotage of a, in New York Harbor, July of 1916, where German saboteurs blew up a railroad yard that was packed with munitions headed, headed for Europe. And it did nearly half a billion dollars in damage in today's money. And shrapnel from that explosion riddled the Statue of Liberty. Have you ever wondered why you can't go up in the arm of the Statue of Liberty? It was damaged in that explosion, and they've never been able to repair it properly. Wow. So that was one. It, um, there were several people killed in that blast. And, you know, the, the scale of it and the damage that it did, that is probably the most um, notorious of the acts of sabotage. So with attacks like this, we often see a very heavy reaction from the government. Was there any such reaction from the US government? Yeah, I think there were there were a number. I mean, one is that um, I think the government realized it was it was going to have to get its act together tracking these things down, um, exposing these networks, arresting people. That mostly happened after the war when the FBI was given the sort of free reign to go after subversives. There were a number of trials. There were uh, many German diplomats were kicked out of the country. Some went to jail. Um, they didn't all get immunity. You know, once the war began, um, many German citizens and German Americans of suspected disloyalty were interned for the duration of the war in various camps around the country. About 4,000 were interned. These were mostly, mostly men, mostly believed to be you know, troublemakers. So there was there was a legal crackdown. There was 
the feds were going after, you know, potential spies at a level they had not done before. Was it a situation where saying the wrong thing or expressing anti-war sentiment could get you in trouble and cart it off? Yes. I mean, after America entered the war in 1917, they passed the Espionage Act. And of course, it was designed to go after the people who were doing this kind of spying and sabotage. So that is one of the the legacies of this German campaign. And it was broadened in 1918 to basically include anybody who was believed to be hampering the war effort in any way, which included pacifists or people who were anti-war. There's a guy, I think he was from uh, Whatcom County, who was arrested because he refused to donate to the Red Cross and said they're a bunch of lazy jerks. And he was he was arrested and fined thousands of dollars um, for not giving to the Red Cross and disparaging them. Well, of course, you know, they were key to the war effort. There's another guy, uh, his name was Frank Schaefer, an Everett rancher. He was a Jehovah's Witness, and he received a shipment of Bible study books and it, about a thousand copies of these books, which were going to go to Bible study groups. And in there was basically a couple of lines suggesting that, that the war against Germany was unnecessary. And he was arrested and convicted under the Espionage Act for undermining the war effort and sentenced to five years at McNeil Island Federal Penitentiary in Puget Sound. So <clears throat> there was a lot of, I think, a lot of overreach, <laughs> to say the least, that was happening uh, in terms of you know, what was considered sedition, yeah, and, and just anti-American efforts. Is there a legacy of the Espionage Act today? Is there a contemporary legacy of the Espionage Act? Well, it still exists. You know, the case of Donald Trump's handling of classified documents, aspects of the Espionage Act have been invoked. You know, the, the mishandling of documents as well as the active leaking of documents and that kind of thing, that, that's definitely a legacy of the, of the Espionage Act. It still exists. It's been modified over the years, but yeah, it's still it's still there. Is there anything that you've learned since doing this story about the German infiltration, the spy network around World War One? So actually, I, I did a story after this story about the Espionage Act and how it was applied during the World War One era here. And so I was I was fascinated by, you know, some of the stories that came out of that. You know, people in, in Seattle who were who were interned. I couldn't find a number of you know how many Seattleites were were interned, but I did find that a, an estimate in nineteen eighteen that it was hundreds. And I did notice uh, when poking around in the census records that, you know, in 1910, about 9% of the Seattle population was born in Germany. So it's a fairly high number, uh, you know, paled compared to 
Norway and Sweden, but still it was a very large number. And by 1920, that, that had dropped to 6%. And the same with people born in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, you know, significant declines in that population. So I think, I think it had an effect in, in multiple directions. You know, one was, um, I, I just think it's interesting that those, the real numbers of those populations declined so much in the, in the, in the, the years immediately following the war. It's also true in studying the, the German sympathizers of the 1930s that there was this interesting dividing line, which was kind of that people who had had emigrated after World War One to the United States, Germans who had immigrated to um, the United States after World War One, um, when the Kaiser was in power, were regarded somewhat suspiciously. There was a generation gap because when Germans emigrated after Hitler arrived, there were sort of divisions in the German community. The older German community remembered what happened during World War I and said, keep your heads down, don't, don't talk about the Nazis, we're Americans now. They, they were afraid of what would happen. And the new generation of pro-Nazi Germans was uh, much more determined to be open about their political views. Um, this is the new Germany. You know, we should, we should embrace our heritage. And, um, you know, eventually that got a lot of them into big trouble once, you know, Pearl Harbor happened. Was there ever any admission from Germany that they actually had a hand in blowing up that scow? Yeah, it's interesting. So of all the different theories, um, and there are many of them about who did it, uh, nothing has ever definitively been proven. Germany never said, yeah, that was us. After the war, there was, there was international negotiations for compensation, and the Americans wanted compensation for uh, German sabotage efforts. And this dragged on, you know, up into the 1930s. So it went on for years and years. They did pay a small reparation amount, admitting no guilt, for the blast in Seattle. So that's the closest that we've gotten to a confession. I think when I was working on this, I was just sort of stunned by how extensive it was. You know, this was at the time, you know, a modern European country that was breaking every law, <laughs> doing everything they could to uh, marginalize the United States in terms of the war in Europe. Well, we're so fixated on Germany's participation in World War II and the rise of Nazism and the crimes that were committed in the war that was prosecuted, most people have no idea that there was a previous chapter. Well, I think these pre-war chapters tend to get knocked out by the war. In other words, 
you know, you're thinking about World War I, the trenches in Europe, the, the gas attacks. You're not thinking about <laughs> a barge blowing up in Seattle or why that might have occurred. It becomes just a, a footnote of a footnote, really. Now, when you dig into it, you find out, no, there's a much bigger story there. There, there have been books and scholars writing about um, Germany's activity in that pre-World War I period. Same goes for World War II. When I did the research on Nazi sympathizers in Seattle and on the West Coast prior to World War II, there was an active element that wanted to forget all about that, especially after the war. So there were people who were tried, there were people who were jailed, there were people who were interned. But after the war, many of these people resumed positions in Seattle society, and it was just forgotten. And I think, you know, war, <laughs> war tends to trump the memories of what led to it. And, um, and there's al always a desire for some kind of reconciliation that involves forgetting. I mean, I think it's interesting that the day this blast happened, there were Union and Confederate veterans marching together with the purpose of forgetting what the war was about and reunification. And I think those things happen. Often they can be positive, but often they can be very negative because there's a, a wiping out of what happened and why that just gets trumped. <laughs> by war. Thanks for listening to Mossback. If you'd like to see all the episodes from this season of Mossback's Northwest, you can find them at crosscut.com or kcts9.org. The video series is now in its eighth season. A new episode airs on Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9, every Thursday night through November. This episode of the Mossback Podcast was produced by Seth Halloran, and the story editors were Sarah Bernard and Sarah Menzies. Our executive producer is Sarah Menzies. You can subscribe to the Mossback Podcast wherever you listen. And whatever platform you're listening on, Please review us. We'd love to know what you think of the show. And check out the show notes if you want to get in touch or learn more about each topic we cover. Also, if you'd like to support the work we do at CrossCut, whether it's our lineup of podcasts, the video docuseries we stream every week, or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to crosscut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of KCTS 9. And being a member means you can sign up for an exclusive weekly Mossback newsletter from Knut Berger, where he offers greater insight into his latest historical discoveries. Mossback is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Stephen Haig. We'll be back soon with another episode. <laughs>